Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert and I'm here as usual with my friends Nadia Idol. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today we are talking about the great outdoors. So why are we talking about this subject today in June, on June the 8th, 2023? Yes, why are we indoors on this beautiful summer day <laughs> recording good point, this good point. episode? You know, I was literally explaining to my partner that I couldn't go for a bike ride because we have to record a show <laughs> about the outdoors. So that gives you the answer. It's a lovely, it's it's getting into summer. People's eyes are turning to the outdoors. It's when Britain shakes off its rain-sodden indoorsiness and, and ventures out. Um, of course, we are ready, willing to sacrifice our, our afternoon to enhance your enjoyment of the outdoors, dear listener, by giving you some context. That's why I think we should talk about it. What about you, Nadia? Yeah, so so like you, I'm really interested in this uh, time of year, Kia. Um, I think you know it's particular to I think this this part of the world that you can really see people emerge, you know, like flowers budding or something. Like it really makes me feel like people are part of nature um, because yeah, come May, June, that everybody wants to be outdoors. Like we can see it, we can see it in people's behaviour, we can see it in people's choose, choice of activities, but we also can see it in like cultural production and like how people talk about the outdoors becomes different. You know, whether it's like in magazines or like music that's produced, um, etc. But of course, when people go outdoors, it then necessitates discussion about like where are we allowed to be outdoors? Because it's one thing to be in your, you know, garden with your ice lolly, you know, listening to ACFM, and another thing to be, you know, in a park or in a mountain or in other kinds of public spaces, you know, walking in the countryside, which I think we're gonna talk about because there's obviously that's political, because it comes with where we're allowed to be and where we're not allowed to be. So that's why why I'm interested about talking about the outdoors. What about you, Jeremy? Well, it's in, it's interesting for all the reasons you say. Raises all kinds of interesting questions. There's a long tradition of thinking about the relationship between the country and the city, the inside, the outside, the, and the outside as public or as more tendentionally public than the inside, the indoors. Which are all themes we're really interested in. So, and also like everyone else, I do I do really look. I do spend a lot of time outdoors in the summer. Yeah, so there's loads of interesting ideas there, which I'm sure we will unpack. But before we get into the subject, just a quick reminder, listeners, that we now have a newsletter. Um, so you can get weirder and leftier with us by subscribing to our newsletter by going to novara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter that has all sorts of uh, bits of content which we have been writing up for you. And then also just a reminder that... For mu more of the music and less of the chat, you can follow our expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify by just searching for ACFM. And to support us and to keep doing what we're doing and more from the ACFM cosmos, please support our hosts, Novara Media, uh, by going to novara.media forward slash support. And last but not least, there may be an opportunity for exciting workshops taking place in Bristol and Bath. So if you are a fan of the show or the fan of 
the kind of events that we've been running and you are interested in having us come over and do something with you, I'd love to hear from you or if you are in Bristol or Bath. And you can tweet at not just you here, that's my handle on Twitter, or you can find all my contact details via Linktree on my Twitter account. I'd love to hear from you, so please get in touch. Without further ado, let's get talking about the outdoors. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to start, to start with this problem that we face, which is we want to go outdoors and yet we don't have access. We can't get access to most of the outdoors in the UK. The British public are banned from accessing 93% of the land in England and we can only get, get access to something like 3% of all of the riverbanks in, in the UK. Only about 3% of those riverbanks are accessible. And there's a reason for that, which is because we live in a deeply unequal society in which 50% of all of the land in England is owned by 1% of the uh, of the population. Um, and well over a third of the land in England is owned by the aristocracy. Most of the land in the UK is not accessible. Huge amounts are owned by large landowners. Um, and like 90% of the population of the UK lives in cities. And like cities make up about 10% of the land area in Britain. I think that is, yeah, 90% of the population of Britain rather than just England. That's the problem that, that the population of, the, of, of, the, of England and the UK more generally has faced since the enclosure of the commons um, and then the, the, the growth of the industrial cities, etc. There's been this sort of serial waves of of urban populations of the industrial working class and um, post-industrial working class having to sort of like fight to get access to this land, fight to, to, to be able to go outdoors or into the countryside and pursue various pursuits, I think. That's the, just the context of it, and it's basically still an ongoing thing. In Scotland in 2003, they introduced a a bill which basically reversed the the emphasis in which the default position is that you have access to land unless there's really good reasons for you not to have access to that land. Whereas in England and the rest of the UK, there is a default exclusion from land. You can only have access to land where there's specific access is granted. And that's usually along particular footpaths. You can also gain the permission of the landowner, of course, but that's that's neither here nor there. Let's, let, this is really interesting. I mean, one, it sounds, I don't know what the statistics are for other European countries, but it sounds absolutely mad. I mean, you read this, those those numbers that you've just told us about Kia and you just think, well, this must be an underdeveloped country. I mean, the fact that, you know, 90% of the population are living in the urban environment on 10% of the land and you get on the tra- you get on trains in this amazing weather in the UK and you see all of this beautiful land and like nobody's allowed to to walk on it but I, what I thought would be good at this point is to kind of defer, d- define terms if we know them in the sense of when we say access to land does that mean so like do you know in terms of like the Scottish Reform Act, does that mean you're allowed to walk on it, ramble on it, hang out, have a picnic, or can you go as far as like wild camping? Like, what are the definitions about access? Well, I, I know that like basically the rights to access land in, in England are just for walking and for climbing, actually. So like they don't include any rights for wild swimming in rivers and so forth, don't include any rights to 
camping and so yeah, forth. You're not allowed to do anything, basically. In England and <laughs> Wales, yeah. there is a network of public rights of way that go across privately owned land. Mm-hmm. And it's always been a kind of political battle to keep them open. You know, the, the Ramblers Association, which is the association of for people who enjoy walking outdoors, like hike, rambling, hiking as it's called in America. Historically, it really came into existence as a political organisation to contest the fact that in lots and lots of local areas, local landowners who didn't like people walking across their land um, would block off uh, what were supposed to be public footpaths and rights of way. So if you want to go walking anywhere in England and Wales in the countryside, you have to basically know, you have a, you need to have a map which indicates where the public rights of way are because you can quite easily find yourself walking down a road through some beautiful countryside and it's all fenced off and there's no way of getting into it like for miles. So it's very, it can be very frustrating. I mean, there are areas of land like in the national parks which are more open, although you're still not allowed to wild camp in them without, except in very specific areas. And, with special permission so it's pretty restrictive and in scotland the situation is completely reversed this in scotland basically you you are not allowed you're not allowed to fence off land or to prevent people walking across it uh, whether it's on a footpath or not uh, without express permission from the relevant authorities and you're not even allowed to prohibit wild camping without a good reason i mean there are never any good reasons incidentally i mean generally speaking the places where people want to go walking are hills uh, where there aren't any arable crops. There's only livestock. So the historic preference of English and Welsh landowners for keeping people off the land is completely ideological. It has nothing to do with any actual uh, you know, commercial or agricultural utility. Or, or it's more land kept kept that way for for, for pheasant shooting. Yeah, but for, the point is pheasant shooting doesn't do any harm. You know, it doesn't make any difference having people walk across it. It only makes a difference for a few hours. Yeah. I mean, one reason why there wasn't that much pushback against it from landowners in Scotland is because a huge amount of the land in Scotland is just used for grouse shooting and stag shooting, and it really doesn't make any difference. Like, it's huge tracts of land, and it's, and it's just got heather on it. And as long as you're not, like, setting fire to the heather, you're not really damaging its commercial value at all. So they weren't really that bothered about allowing people to walk across it. Of course, the aristocracy has always been, like, outdoorsy. <laughs> it's always going to be outdoorsy. Yeah. It the problem is with people who are not aristocrats who are trying to like do other activities that doesn't usually doesn't involve shooting something. No, that's true. And I realize I'm slightly contradicting myself here actually because I said I'm saying there's no reason for the English and Welsh uh, people really, apart from ideologically, to be worried about people walking across land. I mean, my understanding, sort of, mostly sort of anecdotally, is that there's this sort of mythology amongst. Uh, landowners in English in England and Wales about about the various kinds of damage that might get done to your land by people walking across it but also there's this fear of of people walking across it partly because the populations are so dense and in Scotland the situation is different just politically because Scotland is just much more progressive and much more left-wing in terms of its political consensus but it is also the case that the population in Scotland is so much less dense that you don't have this kind of fear of hordes of people walking across your land if you're a landowner that really haunts the the dreams of English and Welsh landowners, especially in in parts of England that are very very densely populated. I mean, I mean, it's one thing's worth saying. It's always incredible to me that people don't know this. We have talked about this on the show before, but in, because England has this self conception that's formed at the end of the nineteenth century of itself as somehow being an inherently pastoral 
country. People just don't know that it is, it's actually one of the least pastoral places on earth. It's one of the most urbanised countries and one of the most densely populated countries in the world, England. So, and of course, that does create this incredible defensiveness among like landowners and, and rural populations to some extent, because they're always sort of afraid that the hordes are going to pour out of the cities and trample over their last precious remaining bits of green and pleasant England. And it does mean that the whole question of well, who has access to the last bits of land which are actually left, especially, as I say, in southern England, where there just isn't much of it left at all, really after centuries of urbanisation, it's always a really tense issue. I remember my friend Adam Ramsey once, who works for Open Democracy and comes from a left-wing Scottish Aristo family. <laughs> I remember me, we were walking around somewhere in southern England once after going some, to some event and just talking about the just the fascist feeling you had from walk, trying to walk around the English countryside. And it it is really different. It is really, It does feel really different being in Scotland, just knowing, well, you know, you, you can just walk around. And it, it is really challenging in parts of England and, and parts of Wales. It's really challenging just to go for a walk. So Labour are promised a Right to Rome Act in, in, the, in England. Well, the rest of the UK, I think it is. We'll see if that survives. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure, actually. It's one of those that could survive because it doesn't interfere with their main constituencies, rural aristocracy being the Tories. But, you know, we'll see if that survives. Uh, becomes reality or not. But it's really interesting to, you know, unpack a little bit what you guys were talking about. I mean, just what you were just saying there, Jeremy, that feeling, it's very hard to describe it, but, you know, it, it is there. A lot of people have experienced this, this feeling that, you know, you go out and then you are, this feeling that you are trespassing on somebody else's land that you don't necessarily get in, you know, other countries. And people that I've spoken to also will concur with the idea that in Scotland it just doesn't feel that way. Now, of course, you're right, there are all of these paths. And it's not necessarily, I think, that you need to have a map. In my experience, when I've been walking in the Chilterns or whatever, it's, it's actually very well marked, like where is, you know, this pathway, this walkway, this bridleway, yeah, You need cetera. to know where but, it starts. You need to know where, to, yeah, you, where your yeah, path starts. Yeah, you need to know, exactly. So you need to know where you where you walk. If you're doing a circular or whatever, sometimes you can just follow the follow follow the the arrows to get across a field or whatever but yeah it's this feeling that like this this is owned by someone else uh, and it's and and it's not it's not therefore ours in a kind of collective sense i find really interesting which of course is something that comes up also in terms of modern cities in the uk being a multicultural country in a sense, at least for 15% of the country. And, you know, the amount of people who are not white who have never left cities. And I think it's super interesting. Like, what is it that doesn't allow people to do that? And it is that thing of feeling like this belongs to someone else. It's very, very difficult to articulate, but we kind of all know that it's there. Yeah, I remember Jeremy Della talking about this, I think in his documentary about Rave, but he'd never went to the countryside because he didn't know what, what the rules were. He didn't know... <laughs> Who owned it? Or we didn't know how to behave. Basically, it seemed as though it was, you know, something to look at. You didn't know how to interact with it. Well, it's again, it's a political issue, it, particularly in England, going back decades, as I think we have talked about on the show a bit before. That the whole question of how people who are essentially members of the urban poor, which includes historically most ethnic minorities in Britain, how how they negotiate or win access to those 
countryside spaces from which you know their ancestors or their social ancestors even if not their genealogical ancestors were you know were driven out by the enclosures and it has always been a historic issue, historically political issue the right to roam is a is a working class demand going back to the 1930s but it partly it comes out of this whole idea of camping walking hiking this whole idea of like getting out of the city to enjoy the countryside is something that you ought to do you want to do it's part of the good life and it's interesting to think about that history isn't it because of course before urbanization before mass urbanization from the 18th century onwards it's not an issue for most people getting into the countryside and you don't even because most people just live there and a lot of what we think of today as being like the really attractive countryside in which to hike and camp and roam the mountains and the the more rugged hills at least in western europe especially i know in britain it wasn't thought of as being like a place you wanted to go particularly it was thought of as being scary and dangerous and if you only li- you only lived there if you had basically lost you know a kind of struggle over territory because where people really wanted to live and to be was in the the fertile lowlands where it's easy to grow stuff and the weather's relatively temperate and it's predictable and then as urbanization takes hold i, I think sort of across the different social classes to some extent it becomes a desirable thing to be able to get out of the city, especially in the summer. There's like waves, isn't there, basically, of organised hiking, rambling, cycling, etc., that, that that take hold and become big trends. And one of the places to start with that probably is is like the sort of clarion cycling clubs, the sort of like socialist cycling clubs and rambling clubs. And they used to do all, all sorts, actually, like glee clubs and theatre groups and all these sorts of things. But one of the big things was this drive to go collectively into the countryside. So the Clarion Cycling Club still exists, actually. I think it's set up in, like, the late 19th century, where there's this 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 sort of newspaper called The Clarion is, is formed in, I think it's 1900, by this odd character called uh, John Blatchford. No, Robert Blatchford, I do apologise. And it's sort of like, it's one of the first big socialist newspapers. You know, it's one of the it's, it's cited as, as something that really spread socialist ideas amongst the the, the British working class in, in particular, and like that Clary newspaper does this call for people to take up like cycling, rambling, etc. And like there's a big big bicycling cycling boom towards the end of the 19th century when 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 bikes shift from these like penny farthings, which are not very good for for cross country cycling, <laughs> into like the A frame bikes that we still sort of have. And so there's a big wave of cycling and people cycling out of the cities and the sort of, the, 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 the sort of clarion cycling clubs take off, rambling clubs and these sorts of things. But what happens with those is that they, they get turned into this organisation called the Clarion Scout. So they, they have these cycling clubs and they start saying, well, why don't we mix this with socialist agitation? And so they used to cycle round. Then they had this, the Clarion Van, which was a van that drove round and would meet them and they'd distribute socialist literature and organise mass meetings at, around the sort of towns and villages they went to. And there's still, I was in Nelson recently, which is a, a, a town in Lancashire, just north of Burnley. And there's still a Clarion house just up in the hills. There used to be a whole series of these houses which were collectively owned and would facilitate people going up into the countryside and be able to have a cup of tea and to, to do activities up there, etc. You say people, but do you mean men? Because women were not allowed to join most cycling clubs in the beginning. Or what did the Clarion Club come later? 
Well, I mean, I only know this history because I, I, I was in, I was, I did a talk in Nelson, and there was somebody from Clarion House there who did this talk, and it's a really interesting talk. And I like basically here, here, the person she talked most about, and I can't remember her name. I should have done my prep. <laughs> was a woman who was like central to setting up the Clarion House, who organised the sort of raising of the money and all these sorts of all these sorts of things. And um, so I think it was mixed. Um, I, I, there, there are like lots of lots of these examples of these sorts of waves of movements which weren't mixed yeah they were the, the clarion cycling club it admitted women from the moment of its foundation oh right okay in 1895 because it's only it's literally 1985 that women's uh, bloomers for cycling were invented my understanding is before that women <laughs> did not have the clothes were didn't have the clothes that didn't get like caught up in in the mm. in the bike's mechanism and they were only they were cycling in breeches. There was a, there was a couple of suffragettes that were saying, "Well, we were cycling, but we were cycling at night, wearing breeches because we we're too scared to be caught by men, like not wearing a skirt, and what the repercussions would be." Which is why I was asking about the dates because it's like literally 1895. Oh uh, yeah, well that's interesting. Um, wh- when did the Clarion Cycling Club start? Um, it's 95. Yeah. It's 95. The the, the paper yeah. launched in 94, and the cycling yeah. clubs yeah. or the cycling clubs, which I think hadn't. I think the cycling club gets set up around the same time and then it becomes directly associated with the Clarion after like a year. Yeah, because the Clarion yeah something, it's that way around, isn't it? I think. So, the Nash, so the Clarion Cycling Club officially is launched in 1895 and, it, and it, I think indeed it was the only national cycling organisation that, that, that allowed women at the time. The, the story this the, this woman from the Clarion House gave was really interesting because she what she what the, the image she was given was like of this town of Nelson got formed because of the the mills that that, that got produced there etc and she's saying look this is this is a really new thing and there's people coming from all around the uk to nelson there's pollution in nelson and this is something they're not particularly used to and so like it's that self-organization to get out of the pollution do you know what i mean and in fact nelson be- then became a, a like a real center of that municipal socialism of that era it's like a nice image of like that's what was going on you have these new towns built around industrialization, heavily polluting, and then you have the populations organizing to get themselves out of there, basically, for, for like health reasons, but also seen it as part of, you know, as a collective activity and as part of a struggle for socialism, basically. Well, Shonen Knife, cycling is fun. You chose this, Nadia. Why don't you say something about it? Yeah, no, cycling is fun. It's a really, really fun song by uh, my favorite pop-punk Japanese band Shonen and Knife from 1981 and it's got you know bits about the green fields and stuff and it's just a really fun summer vibe song So one song we absolutely have to play that I think I played when I did the folk music microdose, but we'll keep playing it. It's Ewan McColl, the Manchester Rambler. It is the anthem of the Ramblers Association in the post-war period. It also refers back to the Communist Party of Great Britain, organised mass trespass of Kinder Scout, a large area of a lot of scenic beauty in the Peak District in Derbyshire in the 1930s. 
Uh, it is a it's a song I'll sing for you if you want. If you give me, yes, if you buy me a pint. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do your chorus. I'm a rambler, I'm a rambler from Manchester way. I get all me pleasure the hard northern way. I may be a weight slave on Monday, but I am a free man on Sunday. There you go. Yay, nice, (laughs) beautiful. The day was just ending and I was descending down Grindsbrook just by Upper Tor. When a voice cried, hey you, in the way keepers do, he'd the worst face that ever I saw. The things that he said were unpleasant, in the teeth of his fury I said. Sooner than part from the mountains, I think I would rather be dead. Hiking, like mountain walking, again, is really interesting to me. I mean, I know, I don't think we've ever talked about this before, really, but I would... Like I love like a really serious like hiking in in mountains. Like I, I there's some part of my brain is is like my favorite thing to do, uh, in the world. And I hardly ever get to do it because it's really hard to do if you've got little kids, basically, or just even big kids. Uh, I was warned. Does, but is hills good enough? Or when you say no, mountains, like, what kind like, of scale I, do I'm, you need? I'm talking about like the the Southern Alps or sort of mountains. I don't. It's I like Scotland. Now, I, now I do like going walks in the Lake District and stuff. You want mountain? I love the Scottish Highlands, but it's really expensive to go there, and it's the weather's bad ninety percent of the time. So, it's kind of interesting to me because there is this whole interesting cultural history that people have written about about how the mountains are just sort of scary in the Northern European imagination, at least. Uh, up, up until the Industrial Revolution and the birth of Romanticism. But I'm always kind of struck by the fact that in other cultures, in other traditions, like Asian traditions, that they're, the mountains are always thought of as sacred places, that like they're always places of pilgrimage, they're places where hermits go and things like this. But like you don't get you don't get Christian mystics wandering off into the mountains in the Middle Ages. It's just not something they do. But I suppose I'm wondering now if it's just something partly to do with weather, you know, I grew. I grew up. I, I grew Might up in the answer. I grew up in like a in a high, in a rambling household. You know, getting taken to the lakes or North Wales, like and you know, all the time when I was a kid and growing up. But I, I think I, I literally never experienced like a really, really sunny day in the mountains until I was in like Northern California, like early two thousand. I'd like never experienced it. It was completely life changing. <laughs> Like it was completely life changing. I was with Joe, and I said, "I can't believe this! Like we're in some green mountains, and it's not really grey and overcast. Like I don't think I've ever seen this happen." That was what that was. What I'd never really done foreign holidays much before, and I basically learned French so that we could start going on holiday to France. So I figured out that's the nearest place in the summer you could go, and there'll be mountains, and it's actually sunny. And um, so I wonder now if that if that is really the key difference. It's much easier to experience the mountain path as a sacred a sacred path of pilgrimage if it's if the weather's nice than if it's ah, pissing yeah. down. I think you set yourself a complex cultural problem and solved it in within two <laughs> sentences. <laughs> but then the thing is, what's fascinating though is that does it's it's also though it's in Britain and Germany that the romantic where it is like cloudy and rainy and and where 
where the idea of the mountains as the sort of the site of the sublime, as Kant mm. calls it, you know, the, it, it is born again, though. So that's not because of the weather. The, the late, you know, Wordsworth and the, uh, the late poets and the romantics, they basically invent the modern idea of landscape and the modern idea of how you should relate to landscape by going on walks in the Lake District where, you know, it just it isn't sunny that often. I mean, it's nice when it is, mm. but... Um, Perhaps you need that. You need that general alienation <laughs> caused by the weather in order to have the revelation that actually it can be sublime and beautiful. Well, I think the experience of growing up in the north of England for me is like the weather's bad anywhere all the time. The weather's always bad, and so you eventually. And but but also life in the city is is bad and polluted. So you realise that even though at that point you you are sort of forced you are pushed into realizing that despite the bad weather the hills and mountains are lovely compared to the grimy city streets of your dirty old town i guess that's the logic arguably the the classic english sort of post-psychedelic expression of a certain kind of love of landscape and nature is peter gabriel's salisbury hill it's one of those songs i don't really want to like i'm a bit i'm not that into peter gabriel but it is it's so nicely done it's sort of prog pop i think you would, i would call this I suppose it's sort of art pop being done by a, a post-prog musician but it is quite effective climbing up on salisbury hill i could see the city light wind was blowing time stood still eagle flew out of the night I mean, Kate Bush running up that hill, it's my favourite Kate Bush song. It's kind of, it, be, it became a number one hit last year because of Stranger Things, because it being used on Stranger Things. Lots of people said it was very cheesy. I thought the way they used that song on that series was, was beautiful, actually. I thought that was great. and I, But I sort of felt like I can't, I used to play it quite often when I was DJing. I feel like I can't really play it now because it's, it's just associated with Stranger Things. I suppose I'll be able to start again soon. But for a songs about as songs about hills go, that is a classic. I was just thinking about the culture, the cultural specificity of the idea that going for a long walk, which you know we, we've been talking about implicitly uh, throughout, you know, the beginning of this show, like the idea that going walking for a long walk in, you know, a con the countryside or in a big green space is a thing that is good for you. My understanding is it's a post-industrial revolution, like post. Um, uh, highly, you know, cities becoming highly populated in the UK, like phenomenon and this kind of rise of like the Victorian sense of, you know, what is good for a person to do. And then, of course, obviously, there are class implications there and everything that you said about the Ramblers, because, of course, in other countries, 
progress is seen, you know, in the in the in the twentieth century, progress is seen as moving into cities, and that you know it's the it's the peasants that live in the countryside. So if you're first generation city dweller, the idea that you would go back there for some air is not really something that you know people think. It's not how people think about their 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 health. You know, urbanization and sitting down and not having to do the back breaking work of the countryside is what's seen as progress was because we're so far away from the industrial revolution the idea that you know people have been sitting down quite a lot of people have been sitting down okay sh- fair enough there's there's obviously been a lot of manual labor but for both there's both the reasons of health if you were a manual laborer you know for in in the 20th century but also because now a lot of people are sitting down there's this kind of conception that's been built over time that health health and walking like going for a walk is is like a thing and it's a very uk thing my egyptian family for example like they don't get it like what do you mean go for a walk you don't go for a walk unless you're trying to get somewhere and then you take you get in a car if you could you see what i mean yeah like it's a very different conception of health uh, and I'm fascinated by that. And it took me a long time to, to even understand that. In fact, there's probably about, um, it's probably a good like seven in seven years into living here for me, understanding people going for a walk. Like I'd go for a picnic or I'd go to a park, but I'd never really been hiking before, except when I was a very young kid in Switzerland with, with my father. I'd not done that as an adult. And then I got completely hooked. And it's something I do, you know, as many weekends as I possibly can now, because I think like the effect on my body and brain is incredible, especially in this kind of weather. All I want to do is go out for like a 20 kilometer hike or something. Well, it is, I've always assumed it's something to do with the onset of sedentary lifestyles. That's why it starts off with the upper middle of the professional classes, like the romantic poets, that they are the voice of the emerging professional class. And then it, then it spreads to the industrial working class, only really after there's been a very high level of automation in the factories. So people aren't getting the same level of physical exercise at work they would have been getting, as well as having to spend all their time indoors. Because obviously, if you're a peasant laboring in a field outdoors all day, uh, you're not going to get the massive endorphin hit from from going outside and going spending, for a walk. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That you get if you're someone who works at a desk all day or, or works on an assembly line all day. And I think that, I mean, that um, in psychophysical terms, that's what it is, really. It's the enormous endorphin hit you get from the combination of daylight and exercise. Physic- mm. Yeah, and physical movement. And the colour green, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. yes. And England's amazing green. I'm, I'm, ve- I'm very, I'm very pro England's green. I don't think there's a, there's a, a set of greens like it anywhere. We should take a new departure for the show and play a bit of what you might call classical music. We should play The Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams. Fifteen minute piece of music written in nineteen twenty, and it's sort of it's this really nostalgic sort of the idea is it's following a lark as it goes through the day sort of thing. People sort of read it as as a sort of nostalgic sort of 
written by Vaughan Williams, you know, uh, he's probably suffering from like post-traumatic stress disorder, actually, we would call it now, you know, from the horrific experiences he had in, this, in the First World War. And it's just an incredibly popular piece of music. It's like, I think it's the most requested song on Desert Island Discs. And it's like, um, people sort of play it at funerals a lot, etc. And Vaughan Williams is sort of an interesting guy because he collect, he was one of these big collectors of, of, of folk music, basically. Lark Ascending is also the title of a book by Richard King, which is, is a really uh, interesting book, which covers this sort of topic. It's basically about music and the British landscape. I'd recommend that book. Yeah, sort of interesting to think about how much of this, because there's waves of this, waves of like, you know, fascination with the outdoors and then it subsides and then it grows again through the sort of 20th century anyway, well, yeah, and the 19th century, I think. And so it is interesting to think about how much of that is like a corporeal sort of physical thing about like, you know, the need to get outside and have that sunshine, et cetera, and the sedentary lives we live and and in previous times, the incredibly polluted cities that people were trying to escape. And how much of it is this sort of like spread of ideas and the ideas that get spread from romanticism, et cetera. Because I was just going to go back briefly to talk about the Clarion newspaper and the guy Robert Black. Blatchford, who set the Clarion newspaper, was just sort of its guru, because he he was a sort of odd character, um, who who had a bit of a, a mix of ideas within him. Basically, you know, he, he probably did more to spread the ideas of socialism in in, in that period than it, to, to the to the working class and anybody else in that period. But like, he ended up as he called himself a Tory socialist. He, got, he wrote a book called Merry England, basically, which sold like two million copies around the world and stuff, which persuaded loads of people uh, of the of the of of the desirability of socialism. But it was rooted in a very, not quite a blood and soil, but like you know that sort of like a particular idea of of Britain or England, basically. Yeah, he was a very odd character, basically. And then I was gonna I, I was gonna sort of say that like you can see other other moments where. Where this, like you know, this big surge of like going going hiking, etc., has quite complex sort of ideological things tied up to it because, like, the inheritance of romanticism is really complex and can split in various ways politically. So I wanted to mention the Vondervogel, which is this German youth movement uh, that fr- at the beginning of the 20th century, r- just up to to the First World War, really, where is its glory days. So von der Vogel means wandering bird. And so it's this primarily sort of like Protestant middle-class kids from the cities. You know, they have this big youth movement, which which consists of basically going on really extended long hikes. And like camping as well, because that's what you need to do. But it was like that long, long hikes into the countryside. And the, the thing that went along with that was like a rejection of modernity with some sort of pastoral sort of ideas, sort, that sort of stuff. And it, it became huge, basically, like the dominant youth movement of that section of society in the, in the run-up to the First World War. Then after the, after the First World War, obviously Germany becomes this highly politicised um, environment and like the von der Vogel break up into, you know, different factions, etc. The, the dominant part of that becomes really fixated with with this, you know, this, this emerging thing around, well, not emerging, this thing around blood and soil and like the sort of like German nationalism around blood and soil and, you know, reading anti-Semitic sort of, racist sort of authors you know what i mean and then another another element becomes embraces homosexuality and becomes much more sort of like the leftist if you know what i mean and like one of the way one of the places that ends up is in the hitler youth who also take on this you know outdoorsy sort of hiking camping sort of thing as actually does a sort of like communist youth movement 
Yeah, well, the Bo- I mean, the Boy Scouts starts off as an explicitly explicitly yeah, exactly. colonialist organization. Yeah. The whole justification for the Boy Scouts is this perception that uh, the Boer War had demonstrated that the English working class soldiery were not sufficiently healthy and fit and prepared for war. And so you needed an organization that would prepare people to become low-ranking colonial soldiers because, of course, the, pub, the English public schools were already preparing the officer class. I mean, I would say, I mean, what you see going on there is a classic case of there's a kind of emerging cultural practice, an emergent cultural practice to do with kind of outdoorsiness, like hiking, rambling, cycling, camping, doing things in organised groups. And there's a political contest over its meaning. There's a really fierce political context over its meaning because it doesn't have any one necessary political meaning. It can be articulated to or assembled with any a number of different political projects with different valencies. Yeah, and in the UK, I suppose that is the emergence of the Woodcraft folk as an alternative to the Boy Scouts. And so the Woodcraft folk are, ba- are, are based around sort of like socialist, sort of utopian ideals mixed up with like spiritual regeneration and like learning woodcraft skills and all these sorts of things. And the woodcraft folk emerged out of this very odd group called the the Kindred, the kindred of the Kibbo 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 This was Kift. That's a miss, yeah, that's yeah. a typo there, Cliff. Yeah, yeah, Kift, yeah. The Kindred yeah. of the Kibbo Kift. That was a like really weird, like semi-esoteric organisation. Yeah, sort of semi-neo-pagan sort of um, <laughs> like, you know, basically with loads of invented rituals and these sorts of things. Sounds sorts of amazing. Things. Yeah, I think Did they that, have sweat lodges. <laughs> the early twentieth century is completely mad. Like I've been promising yeah. here for ages already that one day we're going to run this role role playing game <laughs> set in the kind of the world of like the Edwardian sort of Edwardian world of like radicals, radical socialist and feminist and occultist and esotericists, and it's it's really it's so mad. All the stuff that's going on there. Sounds like Plan C is fast forward festival. It Those is, yeah. No, it is. I think it is. Those are yeah. always in the countryside. That's yeah, where I got to walk moved. through the Peak District and had amazing conversations with people. So let's have a track by our own producer, Matt Huxley, uh, recording as Muckers. It's a, a, an example of what Matt refers to as his style of pastoral house. Or what I've called Acid Morris. <laughs> with your ass this is out of county on circle dance records talk about camping is yeah. this yes. is this something that you guys did did your parents take you camping when you were kids yeah it was our main form of going on holiday we didn't we uh, we didn't go we didn't have a foreign holiday until i was like 15 or something we used to go camping quite often down to cornwall or something like that and then in fact i think the first foreign holiday we, we had was in france and it's one of those i can't remember what it's called but it's one of those campsites where they already have the tent set up so you don't have to bring a tent with you can't remember what they're called now 
glamping. That's what that's called. Well, it was pre-glamping, <laughs> and it wasn't very glamorous, I recall. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, but yeah, we used to camping a lot. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I do. I I love wild camping. I do, but I prefer. I very much prefer it once again in the in the uh, the, the Mediterranean climate of the Southern Alps. Like doing this it in is a Britain. cop out. You can't. We're talking about <laughs> Britain, and you keep taking us to mountains in the south of all France. I'm, all I'm saying, I'm just going to say this, right? I know people are going to think, oh, middle class privilege. It's not. If you go, there are loads of places in 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 France that are basically ski regions. Places like it's probably true in Italy and Spain as well, but I don't speak those languages, where it's really, really cheap to go on holiday in the summer. Their high season is the winter, and it's and it's much cheaper than almost anywhere you can go on holiday in England or Britain, which is actually really expensive, like almost anywhere you can go with kids. So I'm just that's in my defence. So <laughs> you don't need to defend it. It's perfectly, it's perfectly reasonable. I'm just checking. Well, it's which also locale it's also sort of, it is sort of an, it's an interesting thing to me. It's kind of it's shock. I mean, I suppose this only becomes an issue once you're trying to take kids on holiday, and it's also probably not true if you if you've got a car, which we we do not own a car. We are a non-car family. So if you've got a car, you want to hire a car, you go camping, then it's relatively cheap to go on holiday with kids in Britain. But if you don't want to camp with the kids which in my experience is a bit of a nightmare because they just don't sleep very well. They get very tired and grumpy after a couple of days. Then it's really, really, it's very, it's really shockingly expensive to go on holiday in the English countryside because it's, because, as I've said, because it's so densely populated and despite what, you know, despite, you know, the sort of predilections of a certain sections of the cosmopolitan lily, you know, the vast majority of people in Britain don't want to go on holiday anywhere where they don't speak English all the time so the demand for kind of access any kind of access in holiday time in ho- in school holidays to any sort of rural area is really really high so it's actually it's really expensive i would say prohibitively expensive to sort of go on holiday in places like the west country if you're not quite rich so we've got a camper van you see that's the perfect solution so you don't have to put mm, the tent up yeah i mean you bring t- you even bring your camper van to like you know conferences so well only, uh, only rural conferences i would have only rural ones yeah yeah i mean there's something i will say something here so this also relates directly to my holiday practices is that i don't i do have a driving license but my partner doesn't drive and i have not actually driven a car for like 30 years and it's partly because i live in london and i decided after two years of having a car in london in the 90s it was stupid and i got radicalized by reclaiming the streets and didn't want one anymore so i've really had to learn how to have like car free holidays and again, it's basically easier to go to France or somewhere like that if you if you're relying on the rail network to have a nice holiday than it is in Britain. So it, it's very very hard to get access to British countryside without a car still because of the total decimation of the rural train network in the sixties when the planning agenda. Uh, for the country, it was all organised around the assumption that the future was everybody living in a, in a two-car household. So there is really an issue because access to the countryside is for people who don't live in it, which is most people, is is partly dependent upon transport networks. And if you don't have a functioning, ecologically sound transport network, then people can't going to get there. It's one of the reasons why the revival of the rail network in Britain is like an important socialist demand, I think. Totally. And I think we should do a whole episode that is just on holidays, because I think there's all sorts of things and like uh, history around that. But if we're like, if we're thinking about camping, because the camping is not just about like, the, the you know, the tents and the camper van. It's like having an outdoor barbecue. It's like campsites yeah. are another thing. Like it's Camp not fires. all about like... 
campfires, campfires like having a campfire like the thing I love campfires. I love, in fact, almost every song I can play on guitar is annoyingly a, a campfire song. Like I absolutely love a good campfire. And it's, and I feel like it's one of those experiences that every single year I forget is a thing that happens in the UK in the summer. Like I'm completely taken in by the seasons in a way that I forget every year that like all of these outdoorsy things are possible because it's like we've had like <laughs> nine months of them yeah. not being possible in a sense. Um, and so, yeah, camping is all about all of those things as well. Like you could go with a camper van, you could be on a campsite, you know, you could be wild camping or whatever, but then like suddenly there's that kind of this, this relationship to like the land and sound and the stars, things like the stars. If you live in, if you live in London, I mean, fucking yeah. hell, you don't yeah. get to see the stars, you know? Yeah. The, the other thing to say about camping before we move off the topic is that it's become a big, you know, like wild camping has become a big issue again, isn't it? Because there was like Dartmoor, which is this huge area in Devon, Devon. So basically there was this landowner, this guy, um, Alexander Darwall, who just bought this, this big estate on, on Dart, Dartmoor. Dartmoor was the only place where, where you where you had a right to wild camp, basically. The only place in England. Yeah, the only place in England, I mean to say. Uh, and he bought this this uh this estate which he wants to use for like pheasant shooting etc and all these sorts of things, deer stalking etc and then brought a brought a legal case to get wild camping banned basically he's like tailor-made from central casting as an era yeah, he's Tory mr burns bastard, he's absolutely basically. the mr yeah. burns figure like funding the tories funding ukip funding the leap like totally horrible but what, what is the current state of that legal court battle do we know well, I think he won, but then they, that people are appealing it because there was a, there were like big mass trespasses where people were going in and wild camping on on Dartmoor, basically in protest on it and it being being made illegal. One of those things I think, which is sort of coming, but like the right to roam and the right to access the country, is something that's coming back, you know, as a as a as a, as a slightly bigger issue. And that's my sense of it as well. I think COVID helped with that stuff as well. I think like mm. after COVID, people are like, I just want to get out. <laughs> And nobody I mean, has any money because right, of the cost yeah. of living situation. So, like, people are looking for, like, you know, a- ability to access space, mm. I think, you know. Yeah. Because there's other trends like wild swimming and stuff like that, which is a really, really big trend that's took off over the last, I don't know, 10 years probably. I don't know, perhaps five years. You know, wild swimming is just like swimming in rivers and the sea, etc. Um, and, I've, you know, which, of course, get me involved. It's rivers. It's rivers. Not The sea is assumed to be wild. Okay. That's oh, true. Well, that's. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier, actually, when we were talking about land Rivers access. But when we were talking about the specificity of land access in England, one of the relatively unusual features of land access rules in Britain is it's very, very difficult for anybody to enclose coastline. This is a good yeah, point. So, and that is some. That is. That is something that you 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 are you do grow up in Britain and even in England used to the idea that the beach is always open, the beach is always free. There are no private beaches, and that is always really shocking if you go to other countries, even like Ireland, for example. So anyone can swim in the sea, but you wouldn't want to because uh, <laughs> the European of, Union and, and World Health Organization <laughs> advice is very strongly against swimming in most English coastal waters because of the level of sewage pollution. Let's recognise who we have to thank for our access to the seaside. It's King Charles. We don't give King Charles enough respect on this show. <laughs> and um, okay. it's, it's because the coastline in, in, in England, anyway, in Wales, is, is owned by the Crown or the Crown yeah, Estate, right, basically. Yeah. And in Scotland, it's been handed over. It's still owned by the Crown Estate, but the sovereignty resides with 
I think it's like a minister, one of the Scottish ministers or something like that, or perhaps it's the Scottish Parliament. I can't quite remember. Anyway, just wanted to give King Charles his props because he's yeah, the thanks. one who allows us Hi. to have access. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, let's moan about shit in the shit in the sea <laughs> and the rivers. I mean, it's just an absolute scam. I mean, it's it, it's it's it, but it's beyond a scandal. Like I can't even find the words to talk about it. The fact that there's so many of Br- Britain's waterways just have like consistently these private companies are dumping wastewater and shit in it and, p- and people are obviously in in uproar and you know people have always done petitions like you know written to mps all the usual kind of campaign things but it's a very difficult thing to take direct action on it's horrendous and i don't know how it's ever it's going to be solved this one like it's as if there is no political will because it is about political will Let's lay it out a bit, though, because I'm going to get you even more angry. Okay, go on. <laughs> right. No, because no, it's it to really do with privatisation. I get very passionate about water. <laughs> it's like what I did my my master's on. It was about the privatisation of water. It's like the one thing that I'm like really passionate about. Yeah, yeah I'm go against, for it. And I'm I'll against get more it, angry. the privatisation of water. It should all be handed back to King Charles. It's obviously <laughs> the way to go. No, but let's. I Google some facts just to make Nadia incredibly furious. And um, so basically, since privatisation, water companies have paid out $66 billion in dividends their shareholders at the same time they've taken on 56 billion pound in debt so they've loaded their companies up with debt basically of to 56 billion and they've used that to to pay out these huge dividends and at the same time they basically are not investing in in uh, infrastructure etc i've got some good news for you I've got some great news for you um the water companies have announced they're gonna they're gonna do 10 billion pounds worth of of, of investments in infrastructure which is good news they say they're going to have to raise bills oh, by as much as ninety-one oh, no. pound. The public are going to pay for that. Basically, well, that's they're not going to take it from dividends. That's outrageous. <laughs> so, they, so bills are going to go up ninety-one pound a year on average to pay for this ten billion pound. Because where else would it come from? Fifty-six billion pound in, in, in dividends. Sixty-six billion pound in dividends. Where else would it come from? Possibly apart from out of your pocket. You're right now. That is absolutely prime for some sort of campaign. Working out what you do about it is. It's difficult, basically. No, no it's difficult. It's just difficult to imagine, like what the direct action is. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is what is that direct action? That's well, why I think don't, there's a don't problem pay your water it. bills. Can't get cut off. That would be a that, that would be a method. It would be that a would method. Be a good campaign. That'd be a good campaign. Not, we, could, water. we we could um because you mobilise the mums. The mums who are out who love wild swimming and the surfers against sewage. We've got a coalition to put mums, together. Man. I'm not. I'm, I'm serious. I mean, that's the yeah. And so the Labour Party are not say they don't. They're not going to renationalise. Will they? Will they put regulations around it? I don't know. It's because, like, basically, then you look at like the ex right wing Labour MP, like Angela Smith, her who thinks Asians look like have, have a funny tinge about them. You know, where do these people go? She goes and works for water companies. Do you know what I mean? Of the privatised entities, you know, that's where they've all gone, all of those. Well, the experiment, the experiment in privatisation plus regulation has been conducted over the past 30 years. The results are in of that experiment. Yeah. I think we really yeah. needed to state that very categorically. It was a nice idea in the 90s. Maybe we didn't have to bother nationalising everything. You could just have strict rules. We said it wouldn't work. It didn't work. So we were right. And what happens? Environmental agencies' budget stripped back. Absolutely, they're, they're the regulators. You underfund the regulators. Let the let the dividends pile up for the shareholders. Let those 
uh, fat wadges coming from the, the ex-Labour MPs, um, everybody's happy, of course. <laughs> we should play Go Wild in the Country by Bow Wow Wow. Bow Wow Wow were a group put together by the Sex Pistols manager, um, Mark McLaren, in like 1980, I think. And then uh, Go Wild in the Country is like a top 10 hit for them in 1982. Uh, so he puts it together and famously, it, 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 he, it's a group of, some people from Adam and the Ants, I think, who are ex from Adam and the Ants, and then his 13-year-old singer, Annabella Lewin. And there was a big scandal around the the album that uh, Go Wild in the Country is from, the album called Jungle, Sea Jungle, Go Join Your Gang, Yeah, City All Over, Go Ape Crazy. The front cover of that was a, was a recreation of the band recreating uh, Manet's Le Déjeuner sur la Herbe. And it caused a big scandal because the 14-year-old, then 14-year-old um, Annabelle Lewin was nude in it, although positioned so that you couldn't see any any of her naughty bits, I think would be the 1970s way of, of putting putting that. It's a great song, though, about Go Wild in the Country. All right, so but Nadia, you so you like camping, but you didn't go camping as a kid, is that right? No, no, I love, I, yeah, I love, yeah, I definitely didn't go camping as a kid. My dad did not, was not escaping being born in a farm in Kendall to like then go camping. No, he's kind of like the working class guy done good that is never do something like that, you know. Uh, and you know, my 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 Egyptian family is from Egypt, and camping was not even a thing, like. It's not even on the radar as a, a fun thing to do. Why would you do that? Sleep in a tent is what they would say. Yeah, I see. I can sort of understand that because, um, um, generally speaking, my answer to the question "Why would you sleep in a tent?" is because that is the only way to wake up next to the lake. You know, a, a two thousand meters up in the Southern Alps on a beautiful summer morning. But if there is without that. Without that being the reason, I'm a bit. I, I am a bit on the side of why. Why would you sleep in a tent? It's uncomfortable. Well, because you want to go to Glastonbury when you're 17, well, which is what I did, and there I was initiated in <laughs> Glastonbury. And then, no, and then since then, you know, because because I was living in the UK, I mean, I've, I've been into it ever since. Like, I, I absolutely love it. Um, all sorts of different camping, um, but for for that reason, it's that thing like the nothing rivals like waking up and just being in in the country with the sounds of the country and just like the where the grass smells and everything i love it the thing that militates against that though is that thing about the campfire and that collective thing where you go camping with a few people and you gather around the fire and you sort of have a little drink. always with other people i'm yeah. i'm i'm, I'm yeah, a woman yeah. and a woman that doesn't have enough courage to go camping by myself definitely yeah, i've yeah. never done that that's definitely gendered but um yeah with a crew with your crew of mates yeah, see, this is something I think about quite a lot because for me, being outdoors it does have a lot to do with wanting to get away from the crowdedness of the city. It does have a lot to do with solitude and wanting a sort of meditative experience. No, but I recognise that. I mean, because I, I, I go running, basically. I run around the same woods most of the time. Sykeswood, near Tong, 
southwest of Leeds, if anyone's looking. Uh, uh, and that's my, yeah, and it's like I want to be on my own, really. Because <laughs> that's the bit where I see, I mean, I feel as though I'm in the countryside and because you, you're running around the same area, you notice the seasons, etc. get. I always get excited when the wild garlic pops up, that sort of stuff. Because you don't notice the seasons if you're in the city. Not in the same way, not, not in that different plants emerge sort of thing. Yeah, and I think we haven't talked at all about the, the aural qualities. Like I really have a thing about being able to experience a soundscape where even if you're listening very, very carefully, there's no hum of traffic in the background. And that's really, it's very difficult in the British Isles. Like you basically, you cannot experience that in the southeast. I think the nearest place to London you might be able to experience that is the Black Mountains in in Wales. Yeah, I think, I think you've got, yeah, I don't, my ears are not that sensitive. I mean, I live, I live in the suburbs. Coming from a, a city like Cairo, England is always quiet. I mean, I live in, might come from the suburbs of Cairo as well, <laughs> yeah. but it's like another level. Like there are people shouting all of the time, which is at least something that you don't always get in the whole of London. But also, but this, it, it's this love of the quiet and my association of camping and the countryside with the complete absence of any mechanical noise, which is why, as I think we've said on the show before, I hate music festivals. I think they're an, ab- they're an abominable formation that ought to be abolished and replaced with something with some other kind of activity. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's so much to say about festivals. It's a it's a classic uh, ACFM topic, but but like you could construct. Let me construct a little story then of like these waves of, of of like people wanting to get out of the cities into the countryside. You can sort of see that sort of like the festival, and then that the sort of like the the the, the people who. The movement of like new age travellers, as they were called, and, and peace convoy, the peace convoys, it was always also called, which were basically primarily like urban young young people, like quite a lot of them, you know, um, unemployed, etc. In the sort of like late nineteen seventies, early to mid nineteen eighties, basically kitting out like Luton vans and old buses and stuff, and 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 living in them, and then you know adopting a sort of travelling lifestyle of moving around, and like what went along with that was this wave of of like free festivals festivals which you know but you didn't have to pay to get in and they were sort of self-organized and these sorts of things like festivals had, had emerged before that you know you had like the newport jazz festival these sorts of things and then you had like a, a whole series of of like music festivals that emerged in the 1970s but like the free festival and then the traveling thing it sort of fits with this wave of people wanting to leave the city for a particular reason. And like, you know, the early 1980s, a time of really high youth unemployment, etc. But also a time of like, you know, relatively generous benefits and these sorts of things. And when I was coming up, it was, that was a big, like experience in a free festival was like a mind blowing thing for me. They were, I mean, we're the same age really. And, and they were, they were the cultural social form of, you know, what was left of the counterculture through the 80s and it's sort of extraordinary to recall that they did exist as i've said before on the show i mean you could spend your entire summer just just visiting free festivals every weekend in the 80s um but i always found like them, the food oh jesus christ you you pretty much had to take your own up and yeah a, a lot of the time and there would be sometimes people with really ropey kind of um really ropey like veg vegan or veggie sort of stew on sale and stuff i mean i mean from what i remember it was really you didn't start to even get like the nice garlic mushrooms at glastonbury until the nice garlic mushrooms (laughs) and falafels and stuff but i don't 
didn't even do much eating, you know. Five day speed binge, <laughs> teeth grinding. <laughs> For me, they were just all. It was always sort of a, it's somehow the part, even at free festivals and definitely at commercial festivals. That it's somehow the, they let they're always less than the sum of their parts. For me. Like I like music. We might people may have gathered. Like I'm an aficionado of music, and I love being outdoors. But why? But for me, like to, to to have to be camping in a really nice part of the countryside, and then have it have a temporary city erected there with loads of loads of kind of competing noise sources and stuff. It's just really and twenty five sort of, parties, man. That's what it was all about. I know, but they don't. I know, but I don't. For me, I just don't really, you know. I mean, it's they're always less than the sum of their parts for me that's the trouble they're always less than the sum of their parts i like the idea of it and i think that the you know given all our theoretical predilections like the festival ought to be the cultural form which most expresses our sort of priorities and that's why we are going to do a whole episode about it but the one exception i'll mention and again we'll, we'll go into this in more detail another time but it's worth reflecting on why for me it's so different is that is the also now disappeared phenomenon of the, the municipal festivals. I mean, there was actually, there was a blurry relationship between the free festivals proper in Britain in the 80s and 90s, even into the 2000s, and the municipal festivals. There was, so there was things like Strawberry Fair in Cambridge, which was which was a proper, which was part of the crusty New Age Tramp of the Free Still Festival on, circuit. Still on, it was on last weekend. It was on last yeah. weekend, yeah. But was always supported by the council. You know, it was it was it was had a municipal support. And in London, like we've talked about this before, we we all, we all get Nadia and I both get misty eyed about this. But you know, you basically the one reason we didn't bother like schlepping around the free festivals in the nineties was because you could just go to a municipal festival almost every weekend, and it, it would just be a festival in a park somewhere in south london or east london or north london it would just be a public park supported by the council and you would see a lot of the same bands as it would be playing at the free festivals and there would be sort of dance tents and free party sound systems and all the stuff but then you could just go home in, in the evening and sleep in a nice warm bed <laughs> so and that was a direct legacy of the glc in london as well so anyway let's keep let's keep our tinder dry on that yeah. festival there's a big, yeah, big yeah, there's, yeah. it's worth going into in some depth on on, on a on an episode yeah, sometimes yeah, but yeah. thinking about that about fest municipal festivals should take us on to also thinking about the places where they happen which is parks mm, yeah you know, parks are a really interesting phenomenon. We mentioned, I mentioned this when we were talking about parks and recreation on the the sitcoms microdose. That you know, the park, the public park, has often been seen historically as like the exemplary institution of municipal socialism. That the it's the thing which is not going to happen without some sort of commitment to public provision by a municipality or even just by philanthropists. And, you know, historically was one of the things that defines the landscape of places like London was the fact that it turned out that even though when public parks were first being developed and opened, rich people wanted to try to keep poor people out of them or keep them somehow segregated, it just wasn't possible. The smooth space, as Deleuze and Guattari would say, the smooth grassy space of the park couldn't be adequately striated. Um, apart from by creating those horrible little gated squares you get all around sort of Bloomsbury in West London. But so there is something, there is something sort of magical about parks. You, know, you just can't, because 
you, you're not going to get they don't make any money for anybody part cannot make money for people and yet it's a completely definitive feature of urban life for a lot of people at least in so Britain. good they are so so good i mean just thinking about what we went through with the pandemic and if we did not have parks i mean fucking hell you know i did not see it was me and the park for like months the other thing with parks is like they help us tell a sort of a sort of historical story of like ever greater access to land basically because i mean in leeds like the the mate the really big parks are you know they're ex sort of like stately homes and stuff like that which got municipalized via inheritance tax and these sorts of things you know and so there's a story there you know the, the national trust gets set up in in 1937 i think i think it gets up, set up before then but then there's a national trust act which means that that um, the national trust can be can hold like land and can hold buildings and these sorts of things and because you know what's what's going on there is inherit or death duties inheritance tax etc which that the big stately homes that have been built up so, you know they basically become owned by the by the national trust etc areas in cities become municipalized or you know areas in cities become municipalized into parks through inheritance tax and there's this sort of ever widening sort of which goes along with like the country becoming more materially equal you know in the post-war period and so forth right up until the end of the 1970s basically when that goes into complete reverse and there's there's actually less and less access to, to land trespass becomes ever more serious act until it becomes a criminal act and these sorts of things you know there's this 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 move it's it's completely linked up or it's tied up that our access to the land is completely tied up with the waves of growing and and shrinking or shrinking and then growing inequality so that's what we need to do get 100 percent inheritance tax turn everybody all, all of the richest homes and, and and land into parks that's my um, manifesto. I'm pretty sure that's going to make it into the yeah. next Labour Party manifesto. <laughs> I'm pushing quite hard, actually, for that. Yes. <laughs> 100% yeah. inheritance tax. Um, as the resident Britpop fan, I think we should have Park Life by Blur, just a classic song, obviously, about park. Confidence is a preference for the habitual voyeur of what is known as... A morning suit can be avoided if you take a route straight through what is known as. John's got brewers brewed, he gets intimidated by the dirty pigeons. They love a bit of him. Who's that gut lord marching? You should cut down on your pork life, mate. Get some exercise. There's this whole relationship between psychedelia and pastoralism especially in britain you know in the in a, if the american acid scene in the late 60s is centered on uh, the the beautiful sunny semi-mountainous and beach blessed climate and environment of northern california in the bay area well in britain you know it's all about it's all about dropping acid in parks in the summer the uh, classic small faces song uh, Ichiku Park with the chorus "It's All Too Beautiful," uh, said to be about dropping acid in a park. It's either West Ham Park or a park in Ilford. Very people dispute that. Over bridge of sights to rest my eyes in shades of green. Under dreaming spots to Ichiku Park. That's where I've been. What did you do there? Feel there. Where I 
featured on the very first episode of ACFM. yeah there's that but also one of my favorites this kind of super super pastoral is a uh, pink floyd's grandchester meadows which is about uh lying around in the sunshine stoned or tripping in a park in a famous park in cambridge and I can neither confirm or deny that I've done those things in both Grantchester Meadows and West Ham Park. <laughs> I see wind of nights be gone. This is not your domain. In the sky a bird is heard to cry. Misty morning whisperings and gentle stare. Nadia, you wanted to talk about picnics. Well, I mean, I just thought I just thought it'd be interesting to like reflect on as a as a phenomenon, as like as as a way for people to like, you know, have a collective, you know, get together or event or hang out in 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 parks. It's just something that I observe. I mean, people in England love a picnic. They love yeah, going. I, love I do. I don't love picnics. I I'm like Nigella. I I like tables, so I don't really like sitting on the floor and eating in 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 a park. I like sitting down in a park and hanging out, but not not so much eating. But it's something that I think in in Britain I've observed at least people absolutely love it. Like when the weather is good, it's like let's get some dips, which is another thing I hate, uh, and, <laughs> and go and go to the park. I'm like okay. I'm not anti it. Like I won't, you know, I won't block invitations to a picnic. It's just not my favorite thing. I love a picnic. Going to the seaside for me would be like, you know, you take a picnic with you because it would no, be No, about... you get fish and chips, don't you? Come on. No. No. Okay. Talk, okay. Talk me through this. What are you, what's <laughs> no, you in your a, picnic? You have a picnic on the beach, basically. Everything gets sand in all your sandwiches. It's disgusting, but it's like, that's what you do. Uh, I think it's partly because you go down the beach and you, it, it takes a while to get there. So you've got to, you know, spend a few hours there. You can only spend like 10 minutes in the sea because it's absolutely freezing. <laughs> so you've got to have other activities that you do around that. And the picnic is a central part of it, I think. Which you enjoy, even though like the food becomes like secondary because it's got sand in it, which is a bit that I don't get. It's like because the food is the most important thing for me. We've talked about swimming and we talked about parks. But of course, these things are also can go together. And one of the most sort of unexpected features of municipal life in Britain in recent years has been the resurgence of interest in Lido's. Mm. It's really interesting to think about that, I guess. Like why you know, why have why have why do people like Lido's when they were sort of seen as this relic of the past twenty years ago? Mm. I like I mean, it, like like canteens, every time you mention a Lido, I get I get that kind of warm municipal futures feeling. Like I've not been to that many can- canteens or that many lidos, but in my in my future, in my utopia, I want there to be lots of canteens and lots of lidos. There was a, the wave of like of building municipal lidos was primarily in the 1930s, which was like this another wave of this sort of like sun loving, outdoorsy sort of trend, basically. Uh, and they all like the 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 design of Lilo's, you know, the architecture of, of Lido's, I mean to say, is 
like it, I love it because it looks like that 1930s municipal socialist sort of feel, basically. Lots of concrete painted white and all that sort of stuff. Love and, it. you know, they went out of fashion because, well, Britain is freezing, Lido, Lido's are freezing, <laughs> and um, it's hot in Spain, basically. So it was that growth of foreign holidays that sort of killed off the Lido. It might well be that, that it is the, I don't know if there is a decline in foreign holidays, but basically, you know, the, the, there is some sort of, of like, you know, people sort of feel as though they shouldn't be going flying everywhere all the time. And I, I'm got the, I haven't got the, the stats. I'm sure that foreign holidays are just increasing in, in popularity just to contradict me. But like this, I think it's that, that idea that, like, you know, you can go on holiday in the UK a bit more. And that trend towards wild swimming is like carrying over into like Lido's, which is like semi-wild swimming. I don't know. Well, I think it's, I think the overall phenomenon is an in, is a big increase in people wanting to swim outdoors, whether yeah. it's in the countryside or whether it's in a municipally provided pool. Yeah. And I'm not sure why it is, but then, you know, I belong to the generation of people who, who've done this. Like I like, I love wild swimming, you know, and I, I like Lido's. In fact, my partner Jay right now is at, london fields swimming in the lido so the more the bigger question is why did people stop like why did swimming outdoors stop being a thing because it mm. seems like a really obviously pleasant thing to do mm. like why why did it why did it decline because um, i was tempted to think that well, it's just something to do with climate change again the weather again that and i'm sure that is that is partly what's driving the popularity of lidos i think it's just there are just far more days in a year now where you might want to go and swim outside because it's hotter, it's warmer, you know. And um, but of course, as you said, Keir, the big the big explosion of Lido building and it was the thirties, and it wasn't warm particularly. Um, so I de- although people also wore a lot more clothes when, when swimming in those days, so that could be something to do with it. Could be partly climate related, but it's also what I I think that. I mean, my sense is that swimming really moved indoors. The, the, mm. the post-war ideal was the indoor heated mm. swimming pool. And it was something to do, it was something to do with an ideal of modern comfort. You know, it was the era of the rolling, rolling out of central heating. It was the idea that what it meant now to live in a world that was better than the one we left behind was that you didn't have to do anything as physically uncomfortable as like be cold swimming outside in a lake when you could be swimming in a lovely, warm, heated municipal baths and i guess somehow somehow we've shifted into a culture in which there's much more there's more value placed on doing things outdoors even if it's cold because the wild swimming is there's also i mean i've got friends so they're really into this cold water swimming like it's really a thing and it is this sort of it is this sort of remedy for alienation is how people seem to experience it there's something about the sheer intensity the sheer raw physicality and corporeality of your body hitting the cold water. But it's also something to do with this, you know, this notion of what a body can do. You know, we've always got, I've, I've always got to mention Deleuze, Marx or Spinoza at some point on an episode. And Spinoza famously says, nobody knows what a body can do. But he's only famous for saying that because Deleuze goes on and on about him saying it. Otherwise it would have been just a passing comment in his book. And I mean, people who are into really, into cold water swimming are really interested in the fact that you can swim in much cold water than you think you can. And I, I grew up being really afraid of being having it sort of inculcated in me that if you got into water that was below sort of 12 degrees, there's a very serious chance you might just freeze, you might just pa- be paralysed and die. 
So there's something about experimenting with the body's capacities, it seems, to do with this fondness for cold water swimming. Yeah, there's something to that, I think. Because like the, the, the enjoyable, there's like an intensity to it. Because the enjoyable thing about the cold water swimming is when you get out and your whole body's tingling, basically. Partly because, you know, your nerves are rebelling against you for <laughs> freezing them, etc. And But it's that like you feel really alive because you're, your body's all tingling etc etc yeah absolutely i think i think so but i think the the contrast for me is it's like is the cultural specificity of what you were just talking about jeremy the other way around so like the idea of hot water indoors for me is the same as like warming plates like this is something that people do in the uk like i've noticed sometimes they warm a plate before they serve a meal and it never occurred to me because i grew up in a hot country that anybody would want to warm a plate because the meal could cook you know cool down in the same vein the reason i'm bringing this up is it i i have never swum in an inside pool i find it very weird to be in a warm pool indoors or in a warm pool full stop like it it's just not an enjoyable thing to me so while I, you know, maybe it, maybe I could get used to it, but while outdoor swimming in like really cold water might be a massive shock, it's this idea of like what the ritual is for like taking care of yourself like afterwards and like how is it related to the climate outdoors and whatever. And it's a much more natural thing that I think I get rather than, as you said, like there being this cultural moment where people want the luxury of I still want to swim, but it has to be in warm water and indoors, which I frankly find really weird. All right. I'm going to say, because we talked a lot about swimming, we should definitely play Let's Go Swimming by cellist and pioneering underground disco producer, Arthur Russell. Yeah, so I think the outdoors, it's really important for us to think about because it is, to some extent, it's the thing which has always not yet been privatised. It's not been enclosed by definition. And the capitalist logic of enclosure and privatization to some extent is always trying to make everything indoors even if it's only inside fences if it's in, inside hedges and to some extent the outdoors is always the common i think that's partly why even even when i'm on my own if, even when i'm physically solitary outdoors i feel like i'm connected to things including other people because to some extent we're all breathing the same air we're all under the same sky we're all swimming in the same water so I think the outdoors it is the common. It's the thing which is always common to all of us, which we can always share and in, in which we can share together. So I think it is really important to defend it as generations before it has defended it from capitalist enclosure and privatisation. I like that because the, the form that privatisation takes is denial of access or just pollution, pollution of the, of the commons, basically. Yeah, exactly. To get outdoors. This is Ashley Cloud. 